Well, hey, it is such a joy and a privilege to be here before you this morning at First Baptist Nixa. I am uh, very grateful for the opportunity not to only be able to share with you about our family's call to the mission field, but also to share with you from God's word this morning. Um, I know that Kelly and I have told several of you this personally, but I would just want to say this in a public way this morning, just how much this great church means to, means to us, means to our family. Um, when I think back on the three years that we served here, um, man, I'm telling you, it's nothing but great memories. It's nothing but just, just remembering that God used so many of you in an instrumental way in our life. When we were new to marriage, new to ministry, you loved us, you extended grace to us, and uh, we can't thank you enough for that. Um, I'm reminded how God used so many of you just to personally pour into us and invest in our lives. You, uh, you probably don't realize the impact that you made on us, but, but you did. And uh, you taught us what it means to really love God, really follow Jesus and love others. First Baptist Nix is forever going to be one of those churches for Kelly and I that kind of like Paul with the church at Philippi, he said, I thank my God every time I remember you. And that's Kelly and I's heart with, with First Baptist. We, anytime we think of you, we remember you, we thank God for you, and thank you for how you continue to love our family over the years, um, even after we've been gone. And so uh, we realize once again that there are a number of you that we're new faces, you don't know us, uh, that's okay, and some of you may not have been here during our Connect time this morning. Um, so before we get going, I, I do want to just give a brief testimony about who we are and, and this calling on our lives, where we're going. Um, if you haven't heard by now, my name's Stephen Shaddix, and that's my wife Kelly with me this morning, and we have two adorable little girls, Casey June and Sayla Jolene. Uh, some of you may remember Casey. She was one year old when we left here, uh, and uh, she's grown up a little bit. She's nine now, and Sayla is five. And uh, miraculously, Kelly hasn't aged a day since the day I met her, uh, and uh, it's just, just a mystery, uh, but uh, we celebrated our uh, 12-year anniversary this past week, and uh, very, very thankful for the partner in life and ministry that God's blessed me with in Kelly. Um, if you know Kelly, if you just look at Kelly, you know I got the better end of that deal, right? Uh, that's, that's no surprise to anybody. Um, but no, I'm very blessed, and, and we've been serving in full-time ministry together uh, for those 12 years that we've been married. Uh, the past eight, uh, we've been at Crescent Valley Baptist Church in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Back in July, I transitioned out of my staff position there as God's preparing us for a new calling on our lives to go and serve on the foreign mission field. And, um, you know, we, uh, we think about the church that we're leaving all the family and friends that we, we love here and the, the life we have here. And uh, I can tell you this morning, we wouldn't be going if it wasn't for the call of God. But we're going in obedience to his call on our life and, um, and following where he leads. You know, I mentioned in, in Connect this morning, there's a quote by a pastor. Some of you know the name, Ed Stetzer. Um, but he said, you put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. And, and that's where... Kelly and I's journey kind of began last year was sensing God was calling us to put our yes on the table, that he was calling us to something new. And that's where it started to, to just say yes to God before we knew what it was. And so we were praying hard about that and seeking the Lord, what, what it was he was calling us to do. We both had a background in missions. Uh, Kelly grew up on the mission field in Papua New Guinea with her family, uh, served there a good chunk of her childhood, uh, came back when she was 17. Um, 
And uh, for both of us, we've both been involved in a lot of different short-term mission trips over the years, uh, both stateside and international. And, and God's cultivated a passion in our heart for missions. Um, and so something that we, uh, we began praying last year was, Lord, if it is the mission field, our yes is on the table. Whatever it is you're calling us to, our yes is on the table. Maybe it's missions. We had talked about the possibility of that. All throughout our, our married life, we've talked that, you know, maybe that day would come. God would call our family to the mission field. And so we were praying, God, if it's that, show us. So as we sensed God leading in that, we started researching missions agencies. We found a missions agency God led us to called TEAM. It's the Evangelical Alliance Mission. Uh, they've been around for around 130 years, have somewhere around 600 missionaries serving around the world in more than 35 different countries. And uh, we very much so align with TEAM doctrinally. Uh, we love TEAM's vision. TEAM's vision is to partner with the global church in sending disciples who make disciples and establish missional churches to the glory of God. That's, that's the heart of team. And I think that's something we can all get behind, that that's what we're to be about. That's what the Great Commission is about, uh, sending disciples who make disciples and establish missional churches to the glory of God. And so uh, as we sensed God leading in that direction, we started talking with one of team's missions coaches. And, and during that time, God was doing a lot of unexpected things in our lives. Uh, I didn't mention this uh, during our Connect time, but uh, God sold our home when we didn't have it on the market. Uh, during that time. And uh, I don't know if you'd look and say, hey, maybe that's something God's saying, yeah, I'm doing something here. Uh, but he sold our home. He provided transitional housing for us. There were some changes going on in our foster daughter's court case at the time. And uh, ultimately, this little girl that we'd had in our home for two years, we thought we were going to adopt. But uh, God had other plans in that situation. And, and so during that time, we knew God was at work. There was no denying. And at every turn, he was making it clear he was calling us to the mission field. We surrendered to that call. We spent around six months walking through the application process with team, praying through and determining where it was God was sending us. And then back in April of this year, we were approved and appointed as long-term missionaries to the Czech Republic. Uh, that's where our family is going to be going. That's where we're going to be serving alongside a team of other missionaries and church planters there in the capital city of Prague. Um, if you're not familiar with the Czech Republic, uh, just a couple statistics real quick that could maybe give you a little glimpse. Uh, Czech Republic ranks as one of the most atheistic countries, agnostic countries in the world, uh, a population of somewhere around 10.7 million people, and less than 1% are evangelical Christians. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of the population would identify as atheistic or agnostic. Uh, no spiritual belief, no belief in God whatsoever. And, you know, when you hear those kind of statistics, it ought to break your heart. And, and that's what happened for us, uh, you know, as we learned about the spiritual condition there and knowing that this is a place where not many people have heard about Jesus, not many people have ever had really even a meaningful conversation about God in their lives. And so as we go, we go for the glory of God. We go that his name would be made known among the Czech people. And we're hoping to depart sometime in March of next year. That's, that's kind of our timeline that we're shooting for and knowing that ultimately that is in the, the Lord's hands. Uh, anybody know that you can't really make plans in this day and age, right? Uh, this is a weird time we're living in. And so you make plans and you just say, God, I, I commit this into your hands. And whatever you do with this, this is, this is up to you. And so uh, we know that going into this. And uh, once we arrive, our, our first couple of years will be spent uh, learning the Czech language, which is a difficult language, and uh, look it up. It, it, it would rank up there in some of the top 10 lists of hardest languages to learn. It's a Slavic language, and so you can pray for us in that uh, as we go. And, and we learn the Czech language, and we, we learn the culture. 
And ultimately, our long-term goal and, and vision is to go and help be a part of uh, planting and establishing missional churches, training and discipling and ministering in a variety of different ways, uh, maybe using our musical giftings and, and just however God leads in that. Um, and believe me, I know where we're going is a very spiritually dark part of the world. You know, we've had some people that have said, are you sure this is a place that's so, it's so spiritually dark? Is this where you and your family are going to live? And you know, something that's given Kelly and I a lot of peace in this is knowing that um, as we go, our job is to scatter seed of the word of God. Be faithful in doing that. Be faithful to the calling he's placed on our lives and to leave the results to him. Knowing we can trust him, we can trust that God is the one who gives the growth. If we would plant the seed, we would water the seed. You know, we remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And, and that's why God gets the glory in all of it. Amen. Uh, this is not about Stephen and Kelly. I would want to make that very clear. This is about uh, the glory of God. This is about the church partnering together and accomplishing the mission of God. And so um, that's, that's given us a lot of peace. It's given us a lot of excitement, knowing no matter what happens, Lord, this is in your hands. Something that we've, we've been dealing a great deal uh, with throughout our training uh, over the past few months. Interestingly, you, you may not think this is something missions uh, agencies would train you in, but they've, they've really helped us to understand the importance, the significance of our own spiritual vitality our own spiritual health, when it comes to being effective and having longevity on the mission field, your, your spiritual health is of the utmost significance. It's, it's the utmost importance. And, and we, know this, we know this to be true, right? If, if we're not ministering out of a healthy soul, if we're not spiritually healthy, we're not going to be very effective, right, in ministry. And, and I would take it a step further. It's going to be a lot bigger than ministry. It's going to affect every aspect of your life. Um, and, and that's something that we've been so grateful for the training that the team has been pouring into us is just saying, you know, it's so important in this season in this time. And as you get on the field, care for your soul, care for your spiritual man. Jesus told us that we're to abide in him. You remember his words, abide in me. He said, abide in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Abiding in Jesus, I would say this, abiding in Jesus is not simply doing things in his name. That's not abiding in Jesus. That's not what it's all about. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, there will be many on that day that say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, for Jesus, it wasn't about the things that they had done. It was about knowing him. And that's what it should be about for us. It's, it's knowing, do you know him? Does he know you? This is what it really boils down to. What's the most important thing in your life? What is of the greatest value to you in your life? Is your life more about the good things that you're doing for Jesus? The things that you're doing in his name? Is your life more about your social status and what other people think about you? Is your life about the fulfillment that you get from your job or your hobbies? Or is the greatest desire of your life to know Christ? I think we all know what the answer to that should be, right? I mean, if I said, what is it? You know, and you'd raise your hand. It's, it's to know Christ. That, that should be the greatest desire of your life. And, and believe me, I'm not standing before you this morning as someone who claims to always get it right in the area of my priorities. I think from time to time, we all see things creep in in our lives. We get distracted. Take us off. Take our eyes off of Christ. Take our attention off of him. But this is what I know. I know the Holy Spirit is quick to convict me 
whenever I've taken my attention off of him. I know he's quick to convict me whenever my priorities are out of whack. I'm reminded in Exodus 20, uh, those words echo in my mind that God tells his people, we're not to worship any other gods, for he is a jealous God. I, I remember this is the God we serve. He's jealous. Isaiah 42 says that he won't share his glory with another, nor his praise with idols. Philippians chapter 3, I believe the P Apostle Paul gives us a very clear picture of what it looks like to make knowing Christ the greatest and most important thing in his life. That's the title for our message this morning, Knowing Christ. And that's where our text can be found. If you have your Bible, open to Philippians chapter 3 with me. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of Philippians 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, first 14 verses and. As you may know, Paul wrote Philippians while he was imprisoned in Rome, most likely uh, faced with the possibility of death. Uh, the passage we're looking at in chapter three, Paul's laying out his personal testimony. He's giving us what I believe one of the clearest pictures of what the Christian life should look like in all the New Testament. And so if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of the word together. As we look at Philippians chapter three, starting in verse one. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I just, you notice right off the bat, Paul's a trendsetter among pastors, right? Uh, he's halfway through the letter at this point. He starts it with finally, uh, you know, and apparently the Holy Spirit had some more to say. And so he continues on. He addresses this issue. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But listen to this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith, uh, not that of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray once again together. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I pray that you would use it powerfully in our lives to speak to us through your Holy Spirit, God. I pray that, uh, God, lives would be changed. We would walk out of this place different than we walked in. And, uh, God, you get the glory for all of it. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, in looking at this theme this morning of knowing Christ, we're going to look at three different aspects of Paul's testimony that he gives in this passage. Paul talks about his past glory. 
He talks about his present gains and his projected goals. And believe me, there is so much we could unpack from these 14 verses. Uh, and we, we're probably not going to have time to get into all of it. But we're going to hit the highlights this morning of this passage. And starting in verses 1 through 6, we see Paul describing his past glory. Look with me how he begins verse 1. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I love that. This is the message that Paul wanted to leave the church at Philippi. He said, rejoice in the Lord. Here's Paul in prison, facing possible death. The same Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about how five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. In danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So this same Paul writes this, rejoice in the Lord. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. We're called to rejoice in the Lord. I wonder how many of us would have that same attitude as Paul, having been through all that he had been through. We need to heed this command. This is a command from scripture. I know that I need to heed this. Kelly could testify this morning that sometimes I let the most trivial, the smallest things in life come along and and steal my joy. Don't have to say amen to that, Kelly. Um, But but I do. (laughs) And I think you could look in your life and you'd say, yeah, there's things that take my joy. There's times that I find myself not rejoicing in the Lord. Maybe it's in the middle of times when things aren't going like you wanted them to. Maybe it's in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know. Maybe it's in the middle of a turbulent election year. Whatever the circumstance it is, this is Paul's message. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul to say, rejoice in the Lord. And believe me, this is not saying don't grieve. This is not saying you don't have sorrow. Paul had sorrow. He talks about it as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You see, underneath the sorrow in our lives, underneath the grief, there is a joy that nobody should be able to take away. It's the joy that the Holy Spirit brings in our lives of knowing that we're in Christ. There's a joy underneath our sorrow. We're called to rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, to write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. In other words, it doesn't bother me at all to write this same stuff to you, the same things that I've already talked to you about. And in fact, it's safe that I do that. Why? What were those same things that Paul's talking about? What had he already taught the Philippians? Well, he had, we know he had taught the gospel, right? He had taught the gospel, and, and this is what any good preacher does. The good, a good preacher doesn't preach the gospel once and then never talk about it again. No, we're called as to preach the gospel over and over and over. I I heard it said that we're like that 80s one-hit wonder band that's still touring today on the same song. You know, we're still going around and playing that same song from the 80s. And and here we are as the church, we're called to play that same gospel song until the day we meet Jesus. The gospel doesn't get old. Now, are there implications of the gospel? There are truths we unpack from the gospel? Absolutely. And we can talk about all those all day long, but they're from the same gospel. And so... What Paul's talking about here is it's safe for me to preach these same things to you. Why would it be safe? Because when we continually preach the same true gospel, it protects us from false gospels. Amen. 
When we know the true gospel, we're protected when we hear false gospels. We know we can recognize them when we hear them. And that's what he addresses in the next verse. He goes on in verse 2 and he warns them. He says, uh, he talk about those that are distorting the true gospel. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There was a group of people in this day known as the Judaizers, and the Judaizers were going around. They were teaching the Gentiles that in order to be right with God, they needed to keep Mosaic law. They needed to be circumcised. Circumcision was necessary for salvation. It's, It's a simple grace plus works gospel that they were preaching, but it was false. And it was hindering the advancement of the true gospel to the Gentile world because they were masking the true gospel. That we're saved by what? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the true gospel. And so Paul was issuing this harsh word, this warning to the church about those who would attempt to come in and distort and taint the gospel of Jesus. And I believe if Paul was standing here this morning, he'd be issuing the same warning to you here at First Baptist Nixa. He would say, watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those who attempt to water down the gospel and make it more palatable for you, a little easier on your ears. I've heard Pastor Tim preach. I've heard Pastor Gordon preach. And can anybody testify you're thankful to sit under preaching and teaching from the Word of God week after week of the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen? That's fine. You can clap for that. Because here's what I know. I know that that's more and more of a rarity in the day we live. And I know that Pastor Tim and Pastor Gordon and the rest of your elders are are not with you every single day of the week. And I think they would tell you, they would warn you, be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you're taking in. But they're they're preaching the true gospel to you week after week because they want you to be able to recognize it when you hear that false gospel. It had to be so frustrating for Paul as he's traveling around on these missionary journeys and these Judaizers coming in behind him and messing up what he had just taught, what he had just preached. They would come in behind and they would add in legalism with it. And so he tells them to be careful, watch out. Verses three through six, we see where Paul says, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, if we're gonna boast, we're not boasting in our impressive religious resume, but we're gonna boast in Christ and him alone. Did you hear in that song we sang this morning? I love that line says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, nor wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's what we're called to rejoice in. That's what we're called to boast in. Boast in Jesus. Don't boast in your own religious accomplishments. We know God is not a God who looks at the outward appearance, but what does he look at? He looks at the heart. He looks at the inside. And to drive this home, Paul says, look, if any of you thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I promise you, I have more. He's essentially saying if anybody could be saved by their religious background, it would be me. And he doesn't make this claim without backing it up. He walks through a a pretty extensive, impressive list of those things, those achievements that he had either been born into or things that he had achieved himself over the course of his life. Listen to what he mentions. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. This is telling us he had good godly parents, brought him to the temple in, in, in accordance with the law, they, they brought him to be circumcised on the eighth day. He had a good godly family that took him to church. Hello. He said, I was of the people of Israel. He's making it clear. He wasn't a half-breed like some of the Judaizers of that day. But he's saying, I was a full, I'm a full-blood Israelite. 
of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only was, I, was Paul a full-blood Israelite, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the most significant tribes of the people of Israel. It was out of the tribe of Benjamin that Israel got its first king. It was Saul, right? What was Paul's name before he was Paul? He was Saul of Tarsus. Very likely that he got his name from the first king of Israel. He said a Hebrew of Hebrews. This means he was a leader within the religious circles. He was at the top. He was saying, look, you don't get any more Hebrew than me. You don't get any more Jewish than me. As to the law, a Pharisee. Today, we have a negative view of the Pharisees. We look at the Pharisees and say, these were the hypocrites. These were the legalists. And, but during this time, the Pharisees were well-respected. They were viewed as people who represented the very best in Israel. They believed in the integrity of the scriptures. They loved the scriptures, meditated on the scriptures. So this wasn't a knock for him to say he was a Pharisee. This would have been viewed as, as prestigious. So he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul thought he was doing the will of God by persecuting the church in that time. And not only did he run Christians out of Jerusalem, but he was zealous in his pursuit to rid the world of Christians. How many of you know, how many of you, know you can be zealous and passionate for something and still be 100% wrong? You know, we live in a time where people say, just be passionate. Whatever you do, just be passionate. But I would tell you that it's important what you're passionate about. It's important what you're zealous for. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Notice he doesn't use the word perfect or sinless, but he uses the word blameless. He's talking about, I lived a moral lifestyle. He followed the rules. He observed the rituals. He brought the proper sacrifices. And so this is a pretty impressive list, pretty impressive resume Paul listed out. He said, look, if anybody has a right, had a right to boast in the flesh, it was him. These are things that Paul used to hang his hat on. These are the things that he looked and said, these are the things that I thought used to make me right with God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're hanging your hat on some of the same kind of things. So many people in the church today are glorying in their religious accomplishments and their religious heritage so many are living in the glory days of yesteryear and things that they've done for God. And let me be clear, this is not to forget the things that God has done. No, we're called to remember God's faithfulness. We're called to remember what he's done. We should look back and remember the goodness of God throughout the generations. When we take the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're remembering. We're remembering what? We're remembering Jesus. He said, remember me. Remember his body that was broken. Remember his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. So we're commanded to remember what God's done. But Christian, please don't put your confidence in your flesh. Don't put your confidence in your religious resume. Put your confidence in Christ Jesus, glory in him alone. So we've looked at the testimony he gives about his past glory. In the next few verses, we see Paul's present gains. We've seen how he had built this impressive list of accomplishments, these accolades, before he met Christ. He's saying, I had a good Christian family, a good godly family. I did all the religious things. I went to all the religious activities. I was a religious leader. I knew the scriptures. I was zealous in my religion. I lived a good moral life. But now I want you to look and see what he says about all those things in verse 7. He summarizes it all and he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. One commentator put it like this. He said, it's as if Paul had all these things, his background, his character, his religion on the credit side of the ledger. In his mind, all these things were credits to him. They were putting him in right standing with God. And over on the debit side of the ledger was the person he hated, Jesus Christ. 
He wanted to eliminate Christianity. He wanted to eliminate those who would follow Christ. But then one day, everything changed for Paul on Damascus Road. He met the Lord Jesus, and Paul's world was flipped upside down. And everything that Paul once had on the credit side of the ledger shifted over to the debit side. And everything on the debit side, which is the Lord Jesus, shifted over to the credit side. And he's saying, look, my credit, my gain is Christ. All these other things that I had, I realized those are not the things that put me in right standing with God. It's Jesus Christ. And I count all that stuff as loss. All those things lost for the sake of Christ. You may be spending your life building this long list of religious accomplishments and social status. But this morning, you need to come to the realization, just like Paul did, that what I used to consider gain, what I used to consider a credit to me, I now consider it loss. I, I used to consider it profit. I used to consider it credit and gain. Now I consider it loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Let's just read verses 8 through 11 one more time. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is better translated dung. I know that's probably not a word you expected to come and hear at church this morning, but that's what he says. I, I count it as dung. It's rubbish. This is what the word Paul used to describe the things of his life before he knew Christ. And he goes on and he says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The things Paul used to consider most precious in his life, all of his religious accomplishments, and yes, even his sufferings for Christ. He said, yes, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I, see, I consider it rubbish. I consider it dung. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Did you catch that? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Anybody remember the old song? Every day with Jesus is what? Sweeter than the day before. Paul understood that. He understood it just keeps getting better with Jesus. So he counted all the accomplishments, even all the sufferings is done in order to know and to gain Christ. And to know Christ is to be found in him. To be found in Christ is to have a righteousness that is not of our own, but a righteousness from God that depends on faith. And as Pastor Tim alluded to earlier, it is, it is not a faith that we, we work up but it is an imputed righteousness that God gives to those who put their faith in Jesus. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's the perfect, sinless life that Christ lived. His righteousness, nothing that you've done, nothing that I've done, but it's the righteousness of Christ that God imputes. I love that word, impute, don't you? It means transfer. It means, you know, we didn't come up with this, but God took it and he imputed it. He gave it to us. Aren't you grateful that our justification is not dependent on our own righteousness? We'd all be in trouble, amen? If it was dependent on our own righteousness, but it's the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin, that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. For Paul, there was nothing greater in this life than knowing Christ. He understood that. He understood that Christ is greater than anything or any possession 
that I could ever have in this world. Christ is greater than any relationship in my life. Christ is greater than anything else that I could ever gain in this world. Everything pales in comparison to knowing him. Did you know that the only thing that's going to matter 10,000 years from now is whether you knew Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that's going to matter. Whether you knew Christ Jesus and whether he knows you. It won't matter who your parents were, how many religious accomplishments you had, how much money you made, how many social media followers you had, how many likes you got. It won't matter the list of things that you did in the name of Jesus, but it'll matter. Did you know him? Does he know you? I love at this point in his ministry, Paul was still in the business of knowing Christ more. What an example he sets for us. There's some people in the church today that talk as though they have all the knowledge of Christ. They know Christ as well as they're going to know him. I've, I've sat under a lot of Bible studies. I've been to a lot of sermons and church services. I, I know all of Christ I need to know. There's a commentator that said these people are the ones who think the only thing they need to do when they wake up in the morning is polish their halo. <laughs> That's all they got to do. Just wake up, polish my halo. Paul, who had lived his life, sold out for the gospel, suffered. He had this long list of accomplishments, but he says, It's all loss. I want to know him. I want to know him more. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ is much more than knowing about Christ. I love the verse in Psalm 34 that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's talking about experience him. This is what he's talking when he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're called to experience Christ. It's to have a relationship with him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. To know Christ is to hear the voice of Christ. Maybe you've been a Christian for 50 years. Can you say that your greatest ambition in life is to know Christ more? To know him better today than you did yesterday? To know him tomorrow better than you did today? May we never get to that point where we say, I'm not, I don't want to know him anymore. I, I feel good about how much I know Christ. But we would always have this mindset of, I want to know him more. You know, it may be easy for you to say amen whenever we talk about the resurrection. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We can say amen to that, right? But what about that next line where he says, I want to share in his sufferings. How many of us are saying, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ? If sharing the sufferings of Christ helps us to know Christ better, I'd say we ought to be willing to suffer for Christ. Amen? That's hard, but this is what we're called to. I'm reminded God's word tells us that anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer persecution. We ought to be expecting it. I, you know, I, I don't know why we think of suffering as a something that, you know, we shouldn't suffer as we shouldn't suffer as Christians. The Bible tells us that we should expect it. We should expect suffering. And here's Paul saying, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to know him more. That leads us to these last few verses where we see Paul's projected goals. Verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here's his projected goals. In these verses, he's making it clear. He realizes, look, I've not arrived yet. Haven't reached perfection or maturity, but that's not going to stop me from pressing on. That's not going to stop me from moving in that direction. Paul wanted to press on towards spiritual maturity. He wanted to press on with the mission. He knew there was more work to be done, but he wanted the prize of the heavenly future with Christ. He says things like, not that I've already obtained or I'm already perfect or already mature, and I don't consider it that I've made it my own. Here's Paul showing a lot of humility, right? By saying these things, he's saying, look, I don't have it all figured out. I don't think that I've grasped all that there is to grasp. I, I've not arrived. Some of us need to take on some of that humility to say, you know what? I haven't arrived yet. I'm not perfect. I haven't been brought to maturity yet. God's still working on me. I want you to stop and think for a second about the, Paul, the life that Paul lived. He was the greatest missionary that the world had ever seen. A man who pioneered the early church, planted thriving churches throughout Asia Minor and Europe, wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament, performed miracles. As we read earlier, he suffered many things, many things for the sake of Christ. And then so much more we don't have time to go into. But here he is, here's Paul, and he's saying, I haven't arrived. There's still more to be done in me. There's still more work of the gospel to be done through me. May we not be so ignorant to think that just because we've been saved, just because we've sat under countless sermons and Bible studies, we've been to all the classes and we've done all the things we're supposed to do, that there's not more work that God wants to do in and through us. Because he does. I believe that with all my heart. For every single one of God's children, he he has more that he wants to do in and through you. and, And we ought to be in that place of submission saying, God, I want you to continue to work in my life. Listen to what he says as he goes on. He says, but one thing I do. I believe so many people have overcomplicated Christianity to the point that it'd be hard to explain to somebody what it's all about. Paul says, this one thing I do. I heard D.L. Moody had said one point, it's better to say this one thing I do than these 40 things I dabble with. Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He was leaving his past behind him. All of his past successes and accomplishments, along with all of his sin, all of his failures, he's saying, these things are not going to be the things that define me. These things aren't going to handicap me, but I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the future, choosing to live with an anticipation for what God has in store, that God's going to continue to help him grow, to mature. Many of us in this room need to grab a hold of this this morning. Some of us need to stop clinging to our past accomplishments and realize there is more that God wants to do in our lives. Maybe you're in here this morning, you're brave enough to admit you know who I'm talking about when I say Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Um, Those of you that know what I'm talking about, I don't have to say anything else. You know who this guy is. But for those of you who don't know who this guy is, Uncle Rico, he's a 40-something-year-old guy, and he's still living in the glory days of high school football and wishing he could go back in time and win the big game. And, and now he's 40-something years old, and he's recording himself throwing a football out beside his van. <laughs> he's living in the glory days. That's not what we're called to do in the Christian life. We're not called to keep living in the glory days, living in the past, Paul said, I count all that as loss. I count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. 
and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I, I put the past behind. Some of us need to stop holding on to our sinful past. So there's some that need to let go of their successes and accomplishments. Some need to let go of their sinful past. Some need to stop letting the sinful past define who you are and realize that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and behold, all things become new. You're a new creation in Christ. You're not who you used to be and you're not everything that you're going to be because God is still working on you. He's still sanctifying you. He's still molding you into the image of his son. So let's stop looking at our past. Let's start looking to what God has in store for us. The past is the past. I think it's okay. I think we're called to thank God for what he's done in the past, but we don't live there. We press on. We give him praise for what he's done, but we don't live there. There's still more to be done. He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing as if he's running a race. And I know that we've got some runners in the room this morning, and you know what it is to run the race. You keep your eyes fixed on the prize. You keep your eyes forward. And that's what Paul did. He had his eyes on the prize, using every last ounce of energy that he had to win the race. And that prize, he says, is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ was his motivator. Christ was his motivation. Yes, he had goals of reaching other parts of the world, but his motivation was Jesus. The prize was always Jesus. He wasn't after the earthly reward. He wasn't after man's applause or the accolades. He was after the reward of Christ and being in the presence of Christ. And I can stand before you this morning and tell you that Kelly and I have come to the point and and we've, we've had this discussion that what is taking us to the mission field is not so that we can look back and glory in what we did, but we're going to the mission field for the glory of God. We're going for Christ and he is our motivation His glory and his fame is what's taking us to the mission field. And I don't think we ought to have any other goal in the Christian life. But we make Christ and knowing him, we make Christ and pursuing all that he has for us our greatest desire in this life. So we've seen that we have to leave our past glory behind. We have to count it all as lost for the sake of Christ We have to make Christ our present gain. Knowing him has to be the most important thing in our lives and our projected goals as spiritual maturity and our heavenly future with Christ. We realize we've not arrived yet. God has more work to be done in us. He's not through with us yet. And that one day he'll call us home and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me close with this. Understand that it wasn't salvation that Paul was running for. It wasn't that he was running his race for salvation. He was running the race because of his salvation. It was what God had already done in his life that was driving him. Salvation is what produced the good works. It was what God was doing in him that was coming out through him. We know that the aim and the focus of our life, if it's Christ, the word tells us that he has good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation isn't something that's earned by our efforts. Salvation is a gift found only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. You've never come to that place where Jesus has become the Lord of your life and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning. I'd encourage you, don't put him off. Don't turn him away. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been spending your whole life banking on the religious activity and your religious resume to be the thing that makes you right with God. 
And this morning, you need to know Jesus. So before you leave this morning, you need to find Pastor Tim, one of the other elders this morning, and, and just let them know God's speaking to you. I'm sure they'd love to talk with you and answer any questions you have. But I just want us to take a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed to just do a, just a self-examination. Just to let God examine our hearts. And to say, God, what, what do you have for me? Maybe he's, he's been speaking to you this morning. You already know that. But what do you need to do with that? I just pray you, in this time, in this moment, the Holy Spirit just speak to your heart. You'd take a minute to just be gut level honest with the Lord. And if your biggest ambition, your greatest desire in life is not to know Christ, to be found in him, having a righteousness that is not of your own, but that which comes through faith, that today would be the day of salvation, and that you would know him.